Um, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Uh, so if you, have a, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there now. Um, if you're using the um, Story Church Bible on the chair in front of you, it's on page 474. And um, like Jeremy said, we're approaching the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's been a long, long time uh, studying what Jesus has taught us um, in his most famous sermon. And today we're uh, reaching an inflection point in the Sermon on the Mount <clears throat> where Jesus is going to shift the focus of his message. Um, up to this point, he's been reframing what it means for us to live as members of God's kingdom. He's taken many of the teachings uh, that the people of Israel were familiar with at the time, and he's exposing what the heart of the law was actually saying. So, for example, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have said, heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Throughout his sermon, Jesus has been demonstrating that as he said in the beginning, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He came to show us how the law given to Israel was not meant to be a list of do's and don'ts, but it was meant to transform our hearts to lead us to a joy and flourishing and an abundant life. So we've heard what Jesus' pitch for kingdom living looks like, and now we're ending the near, nearing the end of Jesus' sermon where he presents us with a choice. Are you in or are you out? In fact, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is a series of comparisons between two options. Later, Jesus will talk about two trees, one that bears good fruit and one that bears bad fruit. Then he'll talk about two types of builders, one that builds his house on the rock and one that builds his house on the sand. But today we're going to look at two separate gates with different paths that lead to different destinations, one to life and one to destruction. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would give us wisdom this morning as we seek to understand what you have told us. As we are reminded of the love you have shown us through your Son, we ask that you would transform our hearts and our lives so that we look more like you each day. Amen. A few weeks ago, I got an interesting email um, at work from someone who had posted on our workplace social media account. Um, I don't know this person, but a lot of people liked the post, so it came through in, our, in my email. And it said this, I congratulate my loved ones for taking up space and being their most authentic selves in the ways they find most accurate to their soul right now. This sentiment is part of the live your truth mentality that is popular in our culture today. When someone says that they are living their truth, what they mean is that they are listening to themselves and not to anyone else. They say things like, do only what makes you feel happy. You are right now exactly who you need to be. Listen to your inner wisdom. These types of philosophies where truth can only be found from within are our attempt to answer one of life's biggest questions. How should I live my life? 
But what I think is ironic about the live your truth mentality is that that's what we do anyways. Our natural inclination is to listen to ourselves, to do what makes us feel comfortable, to not step outside of that comfort zone, and to live life exactly how we want to live it. But does listening and caring only for ourselves really lead to an abundant life? Today we're going to see that Jesus invites us to find life in him. So we're going to look at three questions. What does Jesus mean by life? Why do so many people choose destruction? And how can we enter into the life that Jesus offers? So let us look at what Jesus means by life. Again, in verse 14, Jesus says, The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Now, I, uh, I don't study Greek. Uh, I don't have a background like Jeremy does in that, but I do have access to the internet. So I was able to look up uh, what exactly the word Jesus uses for life here and where else it's used. And this is what I found. The word he uses for life is uh, the Greek word zoe, which is actually where we get the name zoe from, Z-O-E. And it means a life real and genuine, a life active and vigorous, devoted to God. It's typically used in the eventual or eternal sense. Uh, it's actually the same word that we see elsewhere in the Gospels um, when Jesus encounters the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19 and the lawyer in Luke chapter 10, who both ask Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? But this word is also used sometimes to refer to an abundant life in the present, such as in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So in contrast to the life that Jesus offers, he warns us of the destination at the end of the other path destruction. Verse 13, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Just as wide is the opposite of narrow and easy is the opposite of hard, the destination at the end of this path is the polar opposite of the abundant life in the present and the eternal life in the future. This distinction between life and destruction as two outcomes comes after a series of lessons Jesus has given to his listeners where he contrasts the old way of thinking about the law versus the new way that he is presenting. He's inviting the listeners to connect their current understanding of the law with the path that leads to destruction and to connect his way of obeying God as a path that leads to life. In other words, there's a difference between following the letter of the law as opposed to understanding that the law is meant to transform our hearts and lives. Remember what happens with the rich young ruler who asks Jesus about eternal life? Jesus asks him if he's kept all the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what's the rich young ruler's response? Yes, all these I have kept. And yet when Jesus tells him to sell all he has and give to the poor, the man walked away sad. Because while he followed the law all his life, he was never transformed by it. He obeyed the law only for fear of punishment, not out of a love for God and a love for others that would require being generous with his wealth. And before you judge the rich young ruler for his response, ask yourself, how would you have responded to Jesus in that moment? Jesus is making a point that it is not just those who are actively doing wrong things who are on the path towards destruction. It is also those who are doing the right things for the wrong reasons. He is showing us that the path towards destruction is not only filled with 
those who commit murder, but also those who hold hatred in their heart. Not only those who steal, but also those who give to others in need, but only do so in order to be praised by others for their generosity. Not only those who reject God openly, but also those who pray to God for all to see in hopes that they will look holy and righteous in front of their peers. So Jesus tells us there are two ways to live our lives, one that leads to life and one that leads to destruction. If these are the only two options, it seems like an obvious choice, right? We all want an abundant life. So this brings us to our second question. Why doesn't everyone choose life? And the answer is right there in the passage. The gate is narrow and the way is hard. We've already seen what makes the way hard. We've experienced it in our own lives. The way Jesus asks us to conduct our lives and our interactions with others is difficult. It's counterintuitive. It goes against our natural instinct. Jesus tells us to seek reconciliation with others, but that's not easy to do. It's much easier for us to hold our grudges against our neighbors, and it feels natural to be angry with someone when they've hurt us. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile for the people who try to take advantage of us. It's much easier for us to seek revenge when someone does us wrong than it is to respond with love. Jesus tells us to give to those in need in such a way that our right hand doesn't know what our left hand is doing. That's much harder to do because our selfish nature wants to give in such a way that others see our generosity and praise us for it. A few weeks ago, Jeremy preached on Jesus' command not to be anxious, and I know we all struggle not to be anxious. I know I definitely do. Kendall and I spend a lot of our time worrying about what's going to happen in the future. Are we saving enough money? Are we going to get the projects done around our house? Are we going to have enough vacation hours to go on our next trip? It's much harder for me to put my trust in God to provide for my needs than it is to trust myself to be able to provide comfort and security. But these are the things Jesus has commanded us to do. The fact that this way is harder is why so many people choose the easy way. Life on the easy way lets you pick and choose which rules you want to follow and allows you to build your own philosophy. You don't have to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. I'm not ashamed to admit that I am a country music fan, and I also know that not many of you are, um, but the most popular country music artist right now is a guy named Morgan Wallen, and he released an album this year with a whole bunch of songs on it, um, and one of the songs is called In the Bible, and the lyrics go like this. If John Deere Green was 316 and old bar stools were back pew seats, these Friday nights would all just seem like Sunday morning. If them words in red were a little more red, the sinner'd be a saint instead. If a back porch swing and twang in your words and setting that hook was a good book verse, I'd be doing all right. I'd know where I was going when I get to the other side. Lord knows I'd be one hell of a disciple if being country was in the Bible. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with the things he's talking about doing, right? It's fine for someone to go fishing um, or like riding their tractor. Um, but what he's really saying is that uh, that's not all the Bible is about, right? The Bible is full of things that challenge us, that ask us to step outside of our comfort zone, um, to care for people other than ourselves. Jesus is telling us that um, actually following your own desires and listening only to your truth doesn't lead to life 
It leads to destruction. What we see here from Morgan Wallen is what we all have experienced to one degree or another in our own lives. The easiest thing for us to do is follow our own desires. But are we concerned at all about where that path is leading us to? By painting this picture, Jesus is saying that the destination matters more than the difficulty of the path we take. In other words, we could rephrase Jesus's point here as, if you know the path you are taking leads to your death, would you still take it just because it's an easy one? Imagine if you were hiking in the wilderness and you came to a fork in the road, and one way is a downhill, easy path, it's paved, but at the other end is a cliff that you would eventually fall off and die. The other path is an uphill climb, it's rocky, difficult, but at the other end, there's an oasis and a hot spring where you can relax. Surely we would all choose the second one, right? What Jesus is saying is that knowing that the difference in the two paths is inconsequential because the extreme difference in the destinations. Several years ago, uh, my family was uh, in Colorado, near Glenwood Springs, and uh, my sister and brother and their spouses really wanted to do this hike to Hanging Lake. And they were really into photography at the time. This was when everyone and their mom had a camera and thought that they were really good at it. And um, they had warned me, you know, it's a very challenging hike, but they said it'll be so worth it because the pictures we're going to get when we get there. So I wasn't in photography, but I was along for the ride. Um, and the hike is not very long. It's actually only a mile and a half long, but it is over a quarter mile uphill in elevation. So imagine uh, walking up to the top of the Empire State Building, um, taking the stairs. And it was very challenging, actually so challenging, that my dad, who started the hike with us, had to give up a third of the way through um, because it was too difficult for him. But uh, the rest of us did eventually make it to the top, and um, it was beautiful. They were right. Um, my siblings got the pictures that they wanted. And when I reflect back on that hike, um, knowing how beautiful the destination was at the end makes the journey and how difficult it was inconsequential to me, and I'd gladly do it again. And what Jesus is saying is that the choice between these two paths that seems so obvious in physical terms ought to be just as obvious in spiritual terms as well. When we consider the different destinations between the two paths, the difficulty of the harder road is put into perspective. So while Jesus is acknowledging that, yes, the path he is telling us to take is a more difficult one, he is also encouraging us that it is worth it because of what the path leads to, an abundant life experiencing the goodness of God. This brings us to our final question. How do we enter the way that leads to life? We need to enter by the narrow gate. The order is essential here. Jesus makes it clear that the first step is choosing which gate to enter. This step determines the rest of your story. The gate you enter by determines both the path you take and the destination you will come to. The only description we get of this gate that leads to life is that it is narrow. So the distinction between narrow and wide is an important one. Jesus wants us to picture not just a moderately narrow gate, but one that is so narrow you can barely fit through it. Um, growing up, I often went hiking in Cuyahoga Valley National Park, and um, one of the popular trails there is called the Ledges. Uh, maybe you've been there before. And the uh, trail takes you along 
um, these big rock cliffs, and you can go up to on top of them, and then you can go down below them. And there's one point on the trail where um, there's a narrow crack between two of the cliffs. And it's so narrow, you might miss it if you're uh, walking by. But um, when I was younger, you know, I didn't think it was uh, that narrow. But now that I'm much bigger, I realize it's actually very difficult to get through. Um, so difficult, actually, I can't walk through it, right? I have to shimmy sideways and sidestep. And there's rock pressed up against you on both sides. Um, so it's not very good for someone who's claustrophobic. But this is the type of narrow gate that Jesus is, is asking us to picture. It's not impossible to get through, but that's only because I'm not trying to take anything with me. right? Imagine if I was going to try to shimmy through this narrow passageway, but I had a backpack and two suitcases that I was carrying along with me. It wouldn't be possible. I'd, I'd have to look for a different way um, through. If we want to enter through the gate that leads to life, we can't bring anything with us. But this is hard to do. We all have things we're clinging on to. Some of us are holding on to sin. There are things we are unwilling to give up because they bring us temporary joy and pleasure. It's like C.S. Lewis says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Are we holding on to our anger, our grudges, our lusts, our pride, our judgmental spirits, because we can't imagine what it would look like to live without all those things? Or are we willing to let go of these things and trust that what Jesus has to offer on the other side is much sweeter and will bring us more joy than we could ever imagine? Others of us have a different kind of baggage. We are like the rich young ruler, and we're holding on to our good deeds. This is perhaps the most difficult baggage to let go of because we often don't recognize that we're carrying them with us. This spring, uh, the Men of Story Church studied the book uh, Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And one of the focuses of that book is that, um, yes, at the beginning of the story, the younger brother runs off and is far from the father. But at the end of the story, it is actually the older brother who is still far from the father because he can't get over the fact that he did all the right things his whole life, and yet um, his, his other brother is welcomed back in. He's been holding on to his good deeds and everything that he's done, saying, look at all the good I've done. Now you owe me for obeying you. Are we still holding on to a list of our good deeds in an attempt to earn our way to eternal life? Or are we willing to let go of all the good and bad things we've done and trust that all that truly matters is our faith in Christ? Jesus is telling us that we can't bring any of the baggage with us. He is saying it is not possible for us to bring our sin with us through the gate because there's no room for it on the other side. He's saying it's not possible for us to bring a list of our good deeds either because there's no room for our pride to fit through the gate either. The only way through the narrow gate is to let go of everything else. This is the message of the gospel. All we need is Christ. We come to him empty-handed. This is why Jesus commands us to enter through the narrow gate first. When we enter by the narrow gate, we are recognizing that it is Christ whom we rely on for our provisions and for our strength. It is Christ who is more precious than any of the other idols we have put before him. And it is only Christ who is able to live a, holy, a life wholly pleasing to God. Without Christ, there would not even be another gate. 
We were all headed down a path towards destruction, but Christ provides the other option for us. It's like it said, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The good news is that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the one who gives us an alternative to the destruction we were headed toward. Jesus is the narrow gate. It is through him that we are able to enter into eternal life. If we don't enter the harder path by first coming to faith in Christ, then none of what we do matters. The difficult path only leads to life if we have first put our trust in Christ and surrendered our lives to him. What are you clinging on to in hopes that it will bring you life? Have you considered what it would look like to enter through the narrow gate, to follow Jesus empty-handed, to give over control to Christ, and to trust his life and resurrection covers all your sin? Friends, Jesus is inviting us into an abundant life with him. Will you trust that following him leads to life, even when it's difficult? Let's pray.